The British, the British dream. Below our expectations. We're about to be an all country. We're about to be a country. Wonderful to be here. The British dream podcast. Join us, powerful people, as we launch our despicable acts like these and the sickening and barbaric politics. What I hate about this Shut up in your face. is that it's so violent. When the next phase of this disaster comes, they will come for you. Hello and welcome to the British Dream, Vice's politics podcast. My name is Simon Childs, home affairs editor at vice.com. Feels amazing. There's a huge sense of relief. Try to calm down. The people of Ireland have put their arms around the women of Ireland and said, we have you. Behave like an adult. Remember in the spring when Ireland voted to legalise abortion? People in Northern Ireland do. They remember how everyone looked to Northern Ireland with its exceptionally harsh abortion laws and wondered, would they take a similar step? Northern Irish women took to the streets demanding their rights with banners reading, the North is next. With the Conservative government being propped up by the anti-abortion Democratic Unionist Party, it felt like the pressure might even topple Theresa May's government. Then the news cycle moved on as ever. But today we're going back there and asking, what happened with that? Goretti Horgan is policy director at ARC, a social policy hub started by researchers at Queen's University of Belfast and Ulster University. She's an activist for women's rights, and we're going to get the lowdown from her. Well, thanks very much for, for talking to us today. Maybe you could give us like a sort of overview about the situation with abortion in Northern Ireland at the moment, because it's not like as illegal as it was in the Republic of Ireland before the referendum, but it's a lot more difficult than it is in the UK. Legally, the situation in Northern Ireland sounded better than it was um, in the Republic of Ireland before the referendum, um, in that women had a right to abortion, not only to save their lives, but also if their mental or physical health was in danger of long-term or permanent damage. However, the reality is that since devolution, it's been almost impossible to get an abortion except, except for women to save their lives. So before devolution, actually right up until about 2006, 2007, it was quite possible to get abortions relatively easily for things like fetal abnormalities, not just fatal fetal abnormalities, but any kind of fetal abnormality. And also if a woman was very seriously ill, then in some hospitals, she would have got an abortion. In the last three or four years, there have been as few as 14 or 15 abortions each year in Northern Ireland. That means it's only to save women's lives. And it's been impossible to get them for, you know, even when a pregnancy is doomed, like in a fatal fetal abnormality, like something like Edwards syndrome and Patau syndrome or one of those awful syndromes where the baby will die within a couple of days of birth, if not at birth. Um, it's not even possible to get abortions in those cases. And so the letter of the law sort of gives more protections or more, more possibilities to get an abortion than the reality. Is that right? It's under the, like the Bourne judgment, which is the judgment that allowed about 10,000 abortions a year in Britain before 1967. That judgment was from the 1930s, um, said that if a woman is going to be left a mental or a physical wreck, as a result of the pregnancy, then she should have a right to an abortion. Now, in my experience, most women who've travelled to England for abortions were going because they felt that they would be left a mental wreck if they were forced to continue the pregnancy. You know, you don't go to all that trouble unless you're in a pretty, you know, unless you're in a pretty desperate situation. Yeah. And so so why is there that discrepancy and what, what's changed, as you say, after devolution in the last few years? 
So the discrepancy is really is that doctors were always worried that if they did provide abortions for reasons of mental health, for example, um, that that they may be prosecuted. Um, since devolution, that concern of doctors has become much greater. And that's understandable if you actually look at some of the guidelines that have been put out by our ministers for health. So it's been the case going back now 30 years or more that um, doctors here and lawyers have said that the law here was so unclear. You know, what does it mean like that you, a doctor is allowed to give you an abortion if your mental or physical health is going to be seriously damaged? That's very vague. So there had been a lot of pressure, including a court case taken from the, by the Family Planning Association on our, our ministers for health to bring out clear guidelines to say to doctors when they can do abortions. The first of that lot of those guidelines appeared in 2007. And they were actually not too bad in terms of, you know, sort of explaining what it meant about me women's mental or physical health. But it also said very clearly, and this was probably the most, the clearest part of it, that abortions for reasons of fetal abnormality or rape were not covered by the legislation and that they were illegal. Okay. And so basically since devolution, you've got more anti-abortion politicians um, sort of defining the law and set, setting these guidelines. Yes. So since devolution, the first couple of ministers for health were actually fairly okay. Um, and uh, But then in 2009, the DUP realised that actually having ministers for health who were not liberal on abortion, but at least, you know, willing to put women's, women's health first. Um, that would mean that there would be start to be more abortions here. Um, and the DUP then took over the uh, health ministry. And as a result of that, we have had a series of guidelines. There were guidelines put out by Edwin Poots in 2013. And literally they started by saying that doctors should remember that the... Um, the punishment for an illegal abortion was life imprisonment. Now, I'm sorry, but if you're going to start guidelines for doctors as to when they can give women an abortion to remind them that it's life imprisonment if they get it wrong. If I was a doctor, I'd say, sorry, mate, you know, on your way. Um, well, actually, I hope I wouldn't. I hope I'd say I'd put your your health and your life first. But I can understand why doctors, you know, said, OK, then we're not doing any except to save women's lives. And that's essentially what's happened. And it seems quite a weird way to start a guideline in any, in any situation. Absolutely. And then the guidelines went on to use very unmedical language. I mean, it really sounded like something that the Pope would write, which is kind of ironic, given that the DUP are, you know, very anti-Catholic um, and, and, and were set up on that basis by, by Ian Paisley. It's really weird when you read those guidelines, you know, they talk, it talks about, for example, that it's always wrong to directly end the life of an unborn child. Well, that distinction between direct and indirect abortion is specifically a Catholic theological thing, you know, it's got nothing to do with medicine. Um, right. Similarly, the term, you know, unborn what, child. What, is, sorry, what, what even is direct and indirect abortion? <laughs> okay, I know. This really, only an Irish person would know about this kind of thing um, because it is, very, it is very theological. So basically, the Catholic Church says that indirect abortion is okay. So if a woman has an ectopic pregnancy, um, it's okay 
theologically for the Catholic Church for the doctors to remove the whole fallopian tube with the embryo in it. Um, what it's not okay for them to do is to use some of the modern techniques that will remove the embryo but leave the fallopian tube and therefore leave the woman likely to be able to conceive again. Similarly, and that's legal, that's a Catholic, you know, that's Catholic theology that's allowed under Catholic theology. And that's in the like official government mandated guidelines for abortion in Northern Ireland? Well, the official guidelines just talk about indirect and direct and indirect abortion. Yeah. But like the only the only people who talk about direct abortion is the Catholic Church, you know, because it's a it is literally a theological difference. There is no medical difference. And so it's come up in Parliament in Westminster this week. Yes. With Stella Creasy saying, and I'm going to quote, in Northern Ireland, if you are raped and you have become pregnant and you seek a termination, as a result, you could face a longer prison sentence than the person who attacked you. Is that really the case? That is actually the case. So it's already been the case that um, several women here have been prosecuted for getting abortion pills to end early pregnancies. Um, the same abortion pills that are used on the NHS there in Britain. Um, and uh, when women get these from websites... Um, and use them themselves to cause a miscarriage at home. It's very safe. The World Health Organization says it's very safe. Um, well, actually, they say it's less safe, obviously, than having a doctor um, oversee it. But women are able to handle it themselves. And there's quite there's hundreds of women now in Northern Ireland um, who have these what are illegal abortions. I mean, they are illegal abortions um, in their own homes and they face up to life imprisonment. Now, I don't think anybody's going to get life imprisonment. You know, I think there'd be such an outcry that that's not going to happen. But they do face up to life imprisonment, as do women in Britain. And that's actually really important for people to know. Um, the 1861 Offences Against the Person Act, which is the law that covers abortion in Northern Ireland, is also still in force in Britain. It's just that the 1967 Abortion Act provides exceptions under which uh, doctors can perform abortions in Britain. Um, and so over the last number of years, there's been t at least two women that I know of who've been jailed in England for getting these abortion pills themselves on the internet and causing their own abortion, um, admittedly quite late on in pregnancy. But, you know, both of those women had, you know, quite severe mental health problems, which is why they they did what they did. And yet they end up, you know, one of them got eight years, an eight year sentence uh, which was on appeal reduced to three and a half years. Another one got two and a half years in prison. So you know, the reality of women going to prison in the UK, uh, not just in Northern Ireland, you know, for abortion is, is, you know, very much real. And that's one of the reasons why Stella Creasy is sort of saying that this is a UK issue, that it's not only a Northern Ireland issue. Yes, it's a Northern Ireland issue because women here are being prosecuted much more readily and when they have no option, do you know, when there's no alternative for them. Um, so at the moment, for example, here in Northern Ireland, a mother is waiting for a judicial review of a decision to prosecute her because she got abortion pills over the internet for her 15-year-old daughter who was scared of the guy who had got her pregnant because he was abusive and they couldn't afford to travel. The mother was a single parent, so they couldn't afford to go to, to England. This was before abortions became available free on the NHS for women in Northern Ireland. And that mother then made the mistake of mentioning it to her GP 
that she had got these pills for the daughter and that the daughter had had a successful abortion. Um, And the GP, um, because there's a law here in Northern Ireland that goes back to the times of the Troubles, that says that if you know of a crime that's been committed that carries a sentence of more than 10 years, then you have to report that crime. Or if you don't, you yourself have committed a crime, which leaves you open to a sentence of up to five years. So the doctor then felt he had no choice but to report or somebody in the doctor's office reported the mother and the mother is now, you know, facing prison for trying to help her teenage daughter. Whereas if that girl was in London or anywhere in England or or anywhere in England, Scotland or Wales, it would be considered in the best interests of her since she's a child to get the earliest possible abortion, which is what her mother was doing. And I'm wondering how big a movement against that there is. Is there a massive movement against this? Has it been a sort of big issue for like liberation for a while? There's been a pro-choice, a very active pro-choice movement in Northern Ireland for 10 or 15 years now. Um, So Alliance for Choice was set up actually um, in 1996 in anticipation of a Labour government because it had been Labour Party policy to extend the Abortion Act to Northern Ireland. But it it was very slow and was very small and it was really kind of, you know, fairly small groups of feminists. But really since 2008, the movement has started to grow a lot. And basically what happened in 2008, you might know there was an attempt to change the abortion law at Westminster and that was to include um, a motion to extend the Abortion Act through manoeuvring, I mean, political manoeuvring that The Guardian actually described as, you know, Westminster kowtowing to an old boys network in Stormont. It it never happened. Um, And I think that that made people here really mad. It was like at the time Gordon Brown was the Prime Minister and he pretty much threatened um, Emily Thornberry that if she went ahead with the, the proposed amendment that she would could destroy the peace process, which was like a load of nonsense because both the GUP and Sinn Féin were against abortion at the time. You know, all of the political parties were more likely to unite against it, you know, rather than to the peace to be hurt in any way. I, I think the people here just really kind of, the women here just really thought, well, what, what, what? <laughs> Yeah, so, so so looking at sort of the political situation just over the last few months, we had this moment of the Irish referendum and it felt like things might change in Northern Ireland because you had people marching in the streets with the North is Next placards and there was a lot of pressure on the Conservative government to act on human rights in Northern Ireland. And then things sort of seemed to die down. The news cycle moved on. What do you make of the kind of argument that it would be controversial for the Westminster government to like impose things on what should be a devolved matter? Okay, so that's it is true that abortion is a devolved matter. It's also true that abortion is a human rights issue and that a number of human rights bodies from the UN Committee on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women to other human rights, UN human rights bodies, to the Supreme Court just fairly recently, have made it clear that women's human rights in Northern Ireland are undermined, you know, that they're, we're not, we're, we don't have them because of the position on abortion. And it is also the case that Westminster actually can't devolve human rights. So while 
the health part, the regulation part of abortion can be devolved, the actual human rights bit of it can't. So that's the first thing. So there's no reason why Westminster can't legislate and couldn't legislate in the morning if it wanted to. The proposals from Stella Creasy, I think, really help to kind of square the circle um, of the fact that on the one hand, um, Westminster has this duty to protect the human rights of women in Northern Ireland by not criminalising us for having abortions. And on the other hand, that abortion is a devolved issue to the Assembly. Because what Stella Creasy is proposing is that abortion be decriminalised across the UK. And so that's like a UK issue um, because the decriminalisation of abortion would be a human rights measure. It would be bringing the UK into line with what are the human rights norms as delineated by these UN human rights committees. So it would the UK Parliament would simply be decriminalising abortion. It would not be imposing a new law on Northern Ireland. And then it would be up to the Assembly, if it ever returns, to develop a law for Northern Ireland, to develop like a Northern Irish law. I can understand that's like a, a legislative fix that seems very plausible. But is there much prospect for simply winning the argument in Northern Ireland? Um, okay, so um, in terms of like Stella Creasy's proposal, it's not only that it's a potential fix, but I mean, for example, Sinn Féin have actually endorsed that. Now, Sinn Féin normally don't want any legislation from Westminster. So the fact that Sinn Féin are saying that they think that this is a way forward to ensure that women in Northern Ireland have their basic rights and, and to stop the prosecutions, because we really have to stop the prosecutions. I'll, I'll come back in a moment to talk about what possibility there is of actually getting change here in Northern Ireland. But let's just talk for a minute about the impact of the prosecutions on women who are taking pills that they get over the internet. It causes real fear for them and they're afraid to go to the hospital if they think that there may be a problem, if they think that they may be bleeding too much. And at the moment, if they go to the hospital, there's a danger that they'll be arrested and they'll be prosecuted. Now, clearly, that is an urgent issue. That's not something that we can just we can just ignore. And in fact, again, in the Irish referendum, um, it was like one of the really big issues that came up again and again, where when politicians, you know, when, when anti-abortionists said, you want to introduce abortion to Ireland, politicians were able to say, uh-uh, abortions are, are already here. Women are taking abortion pills that they get over the internet. So what are you talking about? And we can say exactly the same for Northern Ireland, except the difference is that in the south of Ireland, they weren't prosecuting women. So women didn't have that fear. Here in the North, they are. Here in Northern Ireland, they are prosecuting us. And that really means that, you know, there's an urgent need to do something about the criminalisation or else, you know, one of these days, there's a fear that a woman who is hemorrhaging and who needs urgent hospital care won't go. So are you saying that um, in Northern Ireland, they are more active at criminalising people than they were in the Republic? Oh, yes. So much, much so. Absolutely. Much, much so. I mean, in the South, in the South, they actually said explicitly that they wouldn't be prosecuting individual women. That was actually said explicitly, really in order to encourage women who needed medical help to seek it. Here in Northern Ireland, it is the exact opposite. But hang on, hang on. So before the referendum, if you were in the Republic of Ireland and you had an unwanted pregnancy, that was illegal, but 
no one would really actually go after you. Exactly. But there were loads of like horror stories about doctors refusing treatment and... But you have to remember that not everybody knows about abortion pills. Secondly, you can only take them up to 10 or 12 weeks. And, and then more especially, they're for kind of straightforward abortions. So, you know, the notion of doctors um, refusing treatment and everything, those women actually need hospital treatment. You know, they need care. And were they in Britain and needing that same abortion, they wouldn't be given just given abortion pills and sent home with them in the same way. I see. So pre-referendum, if you wanted an abortion in Ireland that was not complicated and obviously yeah. it's like abhor- abhorrent yeah. what happened to it. I wouldn't say it wasn't complicated. I mean, before the right, referendum, right, right. it was complicated in that you had to, you had to know about the websites. Sure, you sure. You had to contact them and then they had to send you the pills and the pills had to get through customs. It wasn't all that straightforward because the customs... No, 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 of course. I'm not trying to like belittle that, but I'm just trying to get my head around... But there were no prosecutions. There have been been zero prosecutions in the south of Ireland of women taking abortion pills. Right. And in Northern Northern Ireland... In the Northern Ireland... They do pursue it. Yeah. The extent of the difference between the north and the south was really seen last year, um, in February and March of last year, uh, 2017, when two activists' houses were raided by the police with search warrants looking for abortion pills. Um, they, they were like presumably sort of feminist activists for abortion rights. Yeah, well, actually, one of them was a bloke, but yeah, but he was an activist, he's a pro-choice activist. So, and, right, and, and, yeah. the other, and the other was a woman. And the woman was actually raided on International Women's Day while she was, her place, her, actually her, her studio, her place of work was raided. And it was raided while she was at an International Women's Day event. And the cops would have known that that's where she'd be. But that just tells you something. But at the same time as those raids were happening on activist homes, the uh, police visited between 15 and 20 women that we know of to say that their pills had been seized by customs and customs had somehow or other passed them the addresses, the names and addresses. And these women were visited by police. And let me just remind you that our police carry machine guns our police are armed. So these police turn up at the doors of these women, some of whom, you know, may have been in abusive relationships and hadn't told their partners that they were pregnant. You know, some of whom may have been young women living at home with their parents and their parents didn't know they were pregnant. But no matter what, I mean, if the cops turn up at your door, that's pretty, you know, that's pretty frightening. And that happened, like I say, between 15 and 20. We know of 15 for sure, but we've heard there may have been more. So 15 to 20 women it happened to. Um, and sorry, when, when, when was this? In, uh, in February and March of 2017. And some of those women were waiting right up until the start of this year, right up until the start of 2018, to discover whether they were going to be charged with anything or not. Now, the truth is that the lawyers couldn't figure out what it was that they were supposed to be charged with since they never got the pills into their hands in the first place. I wanted to ask you, in terms of the political situation, there was obviously a lot of attention around this sort of in the spring. And the news cycle has moved on. But I'm wondering what the situation is there now. Is it just that the news cycle moved on or... Was there a lot of sort of a lot of activity and it died down? Pro-choice activists across the island of Ireland, from the south as well as the north, are determined that, you know, over the next couple of months, over the next, certainly within the next year, that abortion will be decriminalised here in Northern Ireland. 
it we we really can't have a situation where this tiny bit like this tiny bit of this island and um, is the only part of these islands you know where women are unable to access abortion you know in their own place where women have to travel to access legal abortions that really is you know a situation that is just so anomalous that it can't be allowed to continue um and so either there will be an opportunity at Westminster when the domestic uh, abuse bill comes back before before parliament to decriminalize abortion then um which would at least mean that women here would not be facing prosecutions and would be able to seek medical help you know if they continue to get abortions using pills got over the internet and then if that doesn't happen if for example there's a general election um and hopefully we get um a labor government that's committed to actually not just decriminalizing abortion here but actually giving us some kind of a decent law as well and um, we would expect that within the next year or so that we would have a similar law in northern ireland to that that they have in the republic um which actually would be a more advanced kind of law than the 1967 act is because it would mean that women could decide for themselves up to 12 weeks and not have to have two doctors kind of saying that they had a right to an abortion yeah because I, w- i wanted to ask you about the sort of westminster politics of it because i think being in london and following westminster we often view this question and the question of the dup in terms of their backing up the tory government in the context of brexit and you know there's a very small number of them and pressure like this could really like destabilize the government but if you kind of switch it around and and if we're talking about abortion as the kind of primary important thing here would the government falling be i guess that would be a good development for the prospects of abortion rights in northern ireland because you might get a general election and then you're saying that labor have a more sort of pro abortion outlook on this labor have always had a, a more a pro woman approach on all of this they haven't always carried through on their policy but at least their policy has always been much better and we've seen the sort of proactive way in which labor politicians including Emily Thornberry and Diane Abbott um as well as more recently um Stella Creasy um have really been to the fore in trying to vindicate the rights of women um in Northern Ireland i think that really the involvement of the dup in the government the fact that the tories are so dependent on them is a kind of a dual edged sword on the one hand it means that the tories are kind of afraid you know to do anything that'll really piss the dup off but on the other hand it also means that they have to be careful not to be seen to be too beholden to the dup the tories and it may be that certainly we felt here that if the dup hadn't been propping up the tories we might never have got the free nhs abortions for women and for women in northern ireland you know that it was like precisely because the tories wanted to show that they weren't completely chained to the dup's dinosaurs views on on women's rights you know that we were able to get the free nhs abortions so who knows really um when it comes to the decriminalization proposals particularly when really now all of the major parties all of the political parties in northern ireland with the exception of the dup would be openly saying that decriminalization is something that should happen so both belfast city council and derry and strabane district council have voted to 
uh, support decriminalisation of abortion. Now, they're the two largest conurbations in Northern Ireland. The vast majority of the population of Northern Ireland live in those two places. Um, and they, you know, with all of the political parties, apart from the DUP, um, have voted to say that abortion should be decriminalised. And so, yeah, that, that sort of brings us back to a question I, I was asking earlier. Like, do you think, you know, beyond Westminster, beyond Westminster intervening, do you think that you could win the argument in Northern Ireland? Mm. So we could win the argument. That doesn't necessarily mean we would get the legislation. I think that people in Britain don't actually realise just how dysfunctional Stormont is. And actually yeah. Stormont has had real problems in passing legislation of the most basic of things. You know, we don't have a childcare strategy. We don't have an anti-poverty strategy. We don't have, you know, really basic things that they should be able to pass. And they were Is nearly, that because of sectarian Because of sectarianism, or? because of sectarian divisions, but also, frankly, because when you have the kind of um, mandatory coalition governments that we have here, where you have like the two biggest parties on either side of the orange and green divide being forced in, to govern together, really. Um, you can you have a situation where where the DUP, who are really like the Tea Party in America, and, and Sinn Féin, who are kind of like Blairites or something, you know, the two of them operating together. I mean, that's obviously that's impossible politically. So if they can't do that, then I think that the idea of them coming up with an abortion law, unless they're absolutely forced to. And that's why it's so important that Westminster would decriminalise and by doing that, force them to come up with some kind of a law, you know, where they'd regulate the med the medical side of things. Um, if that doesn't happen, then you know, no, they'd never, they'd never legislate. They, they, they just wouldn't be capable of it. Could they hold a referendum? They could hold a referendum, but the but referendum then they'd have to legislate for a referendum. <laughs> yeah, they'd have to do that. Yeah, and but also, I mean, there's a couple of things about it. First of all, the difference between the north and the south was that the referendum was necessary in the south because of the constitution. There was a constitutional amendment that had to be taken out of the constitution. A referendum here wouldn't necessarily be binding, and I think it would be very insulting to women to ask them, you know, to campaign for their rights in a referendum, which wouldn't even necessarily be binding, unlike the one in the South, you know. Because so, you'd get a referendum result and then it would get filtered through this parliament that is completely dysfunctional. Yeah, exactly. And so it could mean nothing, you know, you could have an overwhelming vote. And I think we would have an overwhelming vote to change the law and to give women the right to abortion. But, you know, we, we still wouldn't get anything at the end of it. And you just said that you think you would you would get a, uh, an overwhelming vote. So, you know, you're, you're describing the sort of political reasons why there's kind of stasis and nothing's happening. But in terms of public opinion, do you think most people would be in favour of liberalising it? Yes, we know um, from opinion polls, but also from the Northern Ireland Life and Time Survey, which is like our equivalent of the British Social Attitude Survey. It's a very robust, you know, academically robust survey. We know that about 70% of people support abortion being available in sort of six out of seven scenarios, basically very similar to the main um, reason why women in, in Britain have abortions, that 98% of abortions are carried out underground sea. Um, so we know that like I say, about 70% of the population actually support uh, abortion under those kind of terms, including DUP supporters. And actually, DUP supporters are more supportive of a change in the law than Sinn Féin supporters would be, even though Sinn Féin are the ones who are saying that, that the law should be changed. The DUP do not 
and I don't know how often we can say this, do not represent the views of people on the ground in Northern Ireland. Just a sort of really broad question to maybe like wrap things up. What do you think will happen next over the next, let's say, few months? Uh, Well, I think what will happen next is that there will be a lot of pressure on the Westminster government to allow the domestic abuse bill to come before Parliament again and for it to include an amendment to decriminalise abortion across the UK. What happens after that, I would hope that what it would mean is that we could actually start to see in Northern Ireland uh, GPs prescribing mifepristone and misoprostol, the, the abortion pills, to their patients and actually ensuring that women who at the minute take abortion pills on their own in their own home um, will be able to do so with some medical supervision and that women who need abortions for more medical reasons uh, will be able to be looked after in our local hospitals. Thanks to our guest, Garetti Horgan. Check out what she's up to at ark.ac.uk. My name is Simon Childs, Home Affairs Editor at Vice.com. The British Dream was produced by Sam Bonham at Rethink Audio. Until next time, keep the dream alive. <laughs>